Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me again today. Today, I want to talk about safety behaviors because they're really important, uh, especially when we're talking about maintaining anxiety. So safety behaviors, they're anything that people do or kiddos do to avoid anxiety, whether it's to prevent something bad from happening, you know, in an anxiety provoking situation, or even just to feel better and less anxious in that situation. So I think that that's really important for us to think about what is it that our kiddos or teenagers might be doing to lessen that experience of anxiety. So if we believe something's not going to go very well, we're going to feel that anxiety in our body and we're automatically, as soon as that trigger is alarmed, we're going to have that urge to avoid the situation. And so we will do things to avoid that situation at all costs, especially children and especially teens, but anybody really just has that sort of automatic urge. And so if we can't avoid the situation, so sometimes we'll try, and if we can't actually avoid it, then we're going to do things no matter how subtly, and they often are very subtle, to prevent any bad things from happening, or like I said, to lessen that anxiety feeling. We do what we need to do to feel safe. So, you know, there's of course some normal and healthy, important safety behaviors, wearing seatbelts, for example, when we're driving in the car, that's a great, important safety behavior that we should all be doing. The problem, though, is when we have an anxious child or an anxious teenager, or if you're anxious yourself, and these behaviors, they maintain that anxiety because they're doing things to keep them feel safe in an already pretty safe situation. So then what ends up happening is people start to rely on these safety behaviors. Now, these behaviors, like I said, are very subtle. And although it might feel like they're helping relieve the anxiety in the short term, which is kind of unfortunate because then adults get sucked in, therapists get sucked in, parents get sucked in like, oh, you feel better right now. That's great. This must be working. But although it's helping relieve that anxiety in the short term, right, because the kids are feeling better in the moment, they, they might help them calm down right now. But unfortunately, they're only worsening anxiety when we look at the long term because they're reinforcing that anxiety story that I can't handle it. And so, you know, it being whatever situation or the feelings, you know, that I'm feeling that I need to avoid or whatever it is. So there are things that I need to do to stay, stay safe. So when there, you know, are different situations, and they're in that situation again, even though right now, if I do this behavior like checking to make sure I've locked the door a couple of times and just, you know, wiggling it and wiggling the door, I might make me feel better now. But when I'm in that situation again, that anxiety is going to be even stronger. So it's really important to play detective and make sure that we're working on you know, if we're working on the anxiety with the kiddo and the teens, they're not somehow lessening that anxiety by using a safety behavior. And oftentimes that's a piece that's forgotten. And I think it's really easy to get caught in the trap of allowing these small things. So even if we are aware of them, like I said, we might, you know, say that's okay because we're focusing too much on the actual behavior, you know, so maybe it's having a nightlight on through the night, but for some kids having a nightline nightlight, it's not about the behavior because for some it's perfectly fine. Maybe they're peers and they need to get up and, and they're bumping into things and, you know, now they're waking everybody up or they're going to fall down the stairs. We want to have the light on. So, you know, to avoid that, it's not, however, where a lot of the kids might have a nightlight because it's warding off monsters. It'll scare off monsters. Monsters only come if it's pitch black in the house. Then that's a problem. So it's not so much about the nightlight. It's about why we have the nightlight. 
right? So it's not the actual behavior. It's, it's why the behavior is happening. That's the function of the behavior in the first place. So if it's to avoid anxiety, then it's a safety behavior to create that safety. So last year, I bought my high school daughter this toque with headphones built into them. And so guess who wore her toque every single day during COVID? <laughs> you know, when she's supposed to be paying attention, she had headphones in this toque and she loved listening to podcasts. It got really bad, you know, because she wasn't listening to anything that was going online. And my little one, she's always got an earbud in her ear because she loves listening to music. So she's got it on while she's doing her chores. And, you know, when she's walking the dog, she's always listening to music. You know, so maybe in some situations wearing headphones is a problem. But when in regards to anxiety, it's not a problem. The behavior itself is not a problem at all. But if you've got a kiddo who must wear headphones at school because they're really anxious about any loud noises or they can't go into the mall without their headphones to block out those loud noises, right, or they're putting on in music to avoid having to talk to people, then we've got a problem right? Same behavior in both situations, but it's the function of the behavior that's different. And that's what we have to pay attention to because now we're talking about kiddos who are avoiding anxiety and that's the problem. And that's what's going to maintain that anxiety whenever we're avoiding it. So we really need to think about, does the child or teen feel a little bit safer with this behavior? If so, then we probably have a safety behavior. And we've seen a huge surge in anxiety since COVID. It's gotten worse. It was always on the rise. So many of our kids were already anxious. COVID hit and, and you know, just got worse. And, and a lot more safety behaviors have really contributed to that anxiety, which for a lot of kiddos, it ends up turning into sort of OCD types behaviors. Like I can't touch anything while I'm out in public or I'm going to freak out or I'm going to have to go wash my hands, overwash my hands because, you know, I'm going to get COVID. For some kiddos, they don't even want to leave the house at all. Or if their parents still had to leave, you know, especially at the beginning, they're so certain that their parents were going to die and I can't go because I'm going to die. We're going to catch COVID. So we really got to think about, yes, you know, hand washing, especially during COVID, that is a safety behavior, but it's when it goes to excess and we believe that that's creating safety and we're avoiding any uncomfortable feelings, that's where it becomes a problem. For the socially anxious, you know, they're going to do things that don't draw attention to themselves. They're going to try to stay away from social situations in the first place, or they're going to bring a safety person with them that they can rely on. I, I'm bad for that, I'll admit. You know, I have a very funny, gregarious husband, and I will, you know, stand kind of behind and beside him a little bit. And so he can carry on the social activity while I just safely listen. When we were younger, I mean, it was really bad because as soon as he had to go to the bathroom or went to go talk to somebody else, I'd be like a deer in headlights looking for him, right? And so it's definitely a lot better now. But those are different examples of some of the safety behaviors to avoid that uncomfortable feeling. So why are these a problem? Well, I know it's so hard to wrap our head around sometimes because parents and actually therapists and teachers, they want the kiddos to feel better, right? And, and that's why we get sucked in. We're always getting sucked in. There's this reverse hypnosis where we're doing the anxiety with the kids and making it worse and maintaining that anxiety. Everyone wants to feel the kids better in the moment. So we're allowing for these small little accommodations or you know, we, we ourselves are becoming the conditioned safety stimuli ourselves. So, you know, maybe if we're telling them we will never let anything bad happen to you, 
right? Um, I'm just going to stand here. I'm going to watch you go. Nothing bad is going to happen. Well, I'm going to sit here while you fall asleep. I'm going to make sure nothing happens to you, right? Or we're going to spray your room with anti-monster sort of spray. Or we're going to check under your bed. We you are either becoming a stimuli for safety or we're doing the anxiety for them. We're doing the checking for them or we're allowing them to do the checking. All of these things maintain anxiety. Now, there's a lot of different reasons why they maintain anxiety. First, of course, is the fact that we're negatively reinforcing because now the kids are feeling better in the moment. So they're going to continue to engage in those safety behaviors because now I feel better. But the Next time I come in, I'm still going to have those feelings. It's still going to be a problem. And we're just reinforcing those behaviors. But with safety behaviors, children and teens, they never have the opportunity to learn that they can handle the situation themselves. Remember, anxiety is all about, I can't handle it. So I need you, or I need this thing, or I need to do this thing to keep me safe. But they never feel like they can handle the situation themselves. That's the anxiety story. So we're actually reinforcing that story. And then because they're relying so much on the safety behaviors, they're never learning adaptive coping strategies. They just learn that locking the door 20 million times, that's going to make me feel better. But they realize it doesn't actually make them feel better. I had one young man who, who was, that's where it started, but then it would get so bad, you know, he wouldn't be getting to school because he would spend hours just making sure he'd start walking down the path and he'd have to run back up to his house to make sure he locked the door. And then he started video taping it just to make sure so he could look at the videotape but he was always focusing on that videotape and so it was ruining his life it really wasn't making him feel better but when they're doing that they never have the chance to find out for example that even if i left my door open doesn't increase it doesn't make it automatic that someone's going to break into my house right or that just because you know we spray the room or not monsters aren't going to eat me. So spraying the room has nothing to do with monsters not eating me. They never actually get to learn that. I actually just worked with a kiddo yesterday who's he's so incredibly bright and, and he rationally knows that there's no such thing as monsters. But being so bright, I mean, he's wildly creative. He's got this ama amazing imagination and he's got this whole story of how monsters they're, they're going to sense the sleeping body and, and he's going to come eat him or there's these flesh-eating, this is the new one, flesh-eating giants outside who are going to smell him and they're going to come and eat him. So dad must stay with him until he falls asleep. And ideally, he wants dad there all night, but he's like, Caroline, I know that dad's not going to be there all night, but he's got to be there while I fall asleep so that these flesh-eating and, and man-eating, boy-eating monsters don't come eat, come eat me. But, you know, looking at dad... There's no way he can fight off any giants or man-eating monsters, a pack of monsters, right? And we're kind of joking about that. Like, really? Like, what can dad do? <laughs> so the kiddo, he needed to learn that he's not going to get eaten, whether his dad is there or not. His dad being there has, has, has no correlation with him not being eaten, but he's got to learn that himself. He'll never take our word for it. He, rationally, he'll be like, yeah, 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 that makes sense. But as soon as bedtime comes, <gasps> I'm going to get eaten. You got to stay with me, right? He's got to learn it for himself night after night after night after night. Oh, look, dad hasn't been with me. I can go to bed on my own and not get eaten. So without ever learning himself, he's not going to get eaten right? Even if dad isn't there, that fear is going to come up again and again and again and again. 
So that's a, a piece. They're just not learning. No learning is happening. With anxiety, it's all about learning new stories. Now, another problem is that we create a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, too, when we try to, to engage and use our, our safety behaviors. I can't stop thinking of the story of Oedipus, and I often talk about Oedipus, but just to make it a little bit more kid-friendly, the story from Kung Fu Panda, where there's this prophecy that the really bad tiger guy, he's going to escape rhino prison. And so everybody panics, you know, and the one prophet was like, oh my gosh, duck, you got to go to the rhino prison and you got to let them know that this tiger is going to escape. You got to make sure that they make sure all the rhinos are there up your up the protection so that it, this doesn't happen. So the duck frantically goes to the rhino prison, but, you know, unwittingly, he flies over the tiger's cage and one of his feathers falls off and falls into the cage. So in the panic, they are the ones who made the prophecy actually happen because the tiger catches the, catches the uh, feather, I think in his teeth, I can't remember, but ultimately is able to unlock himself and, of course, break through from the rhino prison. So there's this self sort of fulfilling prophecy. So real day examples, I actually have a young woman who's riddled with social anxiety and she's so terrified in it, it doesn't matter if it's presenting in front of a group or even just speaking in a, in a team meeting or one-on-one because she's so scared that people are going to find her awkward. They're going to realize that she's anxious. That's her big thing. She doesn't want people to know how anxious she is. And so she sits as far away from people as she can. She avoids eye contact like at all. She'll just talk and, and she's just really timid. She's looking down. She's really quiet. So she's avoiding all of those things. She's whispering. She's not talking very loud. She's giving one really short, you know, one word answer. The other thing is she turns red, especially in her neck. You can see it coming up from her chest up to her neck. And so she's always wearing scarves around her neck because she doesn't want people to see, you know, that, that, that she's so anxious. And even in the middle of the summer, she's wearing these big scarves. So by staying quiet, not making eye contact, whispering, one word responses, scarf around her neck. I mean, she's coming off as kind of awkward, right? The very thing that she's trying to avoid and very standoffish because she's not approachable. Even though she wants relationships, she wants people to come up to her and ask her to hang out or how she's doing, but she's very standoffish. So she's cutting off any potential relationships that she actually does want because of those safety behaviors to make herself feel better. You know, I've got another team too, very similar, but hers is all about being perfect. So she feels that to be loved, she's got to be 100% perfect. And I mean, she is so self-conscious about everything. Every little hair that comes out, she's constantly smoothing back her hair and it's, you know, in a perfect bun. Um, and and her, her lipstick and her makeup and her, her clothes have to be all perfect. And even the way she speaks, if she messes up, if she stumbles on something, you know, she gets flustered. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So every other word out of her mouth is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she's just so rigid because she's so overcome with this anxiety. You know, she just doesn't look approachable or happy again, right? She wants so desperately everyone to think she's perfect so that they like her. But in doing so, she's not approachable. She's really intimidating because she's this beautiful, perfect girl. What other person could possibly live up to her? So both of these women are just so off-putting. No one wants to interact with them. And so they were reinforcing that story that I'm awkward or that I'm not interesting or that people don't like me, right? Or I, I can't make close friendships. So, you know, those are things that we need to think about. I have, you know, others who have a resting 
mean face. And so they're not mean or snobbish, but that's how they're, they're, other people are, are perceiving them. And so other people aren't going to approach them, right? Because there's this fear of rejection and, and they are actually the ones creating it. So we really got to think about, you know, is this behavior actually really helping us? I'd say probably not. In any situation, either we're creating that self-fulfilling prophecy, but it could also be the fact that I'm not learning anything and I'm, you know, right now I might feel a little bit better, but I'm not really feeling better and I'm going to feel even worse later on, right? So I think that that's really important. You know, I might feel comfortable now, but I'm so off-putting that people aren't ever going to approach me. So if I ever have to interact with them again, you know, I'm just going to feel like, I am no good or whatever other story is going to go on. Or maybe people are even telling me that I'm a snob, right? Or they're responding to me coldly, right? And that's just making anxiety worse. So those are a few of those problems. There's more. Another problem is that our amygdala creates these fear stories and associations. And over time, so I always go like this, our amygdala, our hippocampus, our hippocampus is our memory. It creates these associations. So over time, just as how our amygdala creates this fear story that, for example, for me, a big one was dogs are mean and dangerous. That's a story that I had for most of my life until recently. Uh, the safety behavior reinforces those ideas that this situation is really scary or it's really dangerous. And now all we are aware of is everything that fuels that story that this is dangerous. And so we're missing out on anything, any evidence to say that this isn't dangerous. And so the safety behaviors, it makes us believe that the problem is the situation we're focusing on. So the social situation or the dog or worrying about suffocating or throwing up. I mean, throwing up is a common one. We're so worried about throwing up, right? And I think that's a good one to talk about because we've all thrown up at some point in our life. For some of us, maybe it hasn't been since we were a baby, but throwing up happens. It's pretty common. It's normal. It's not dangerous. It's our body's way of protecting us. There is a reason why we have to throw up. It's to help get rid of whatever bad stuff is in our stomach. So it's not the throwing up that that's a problem. That's a protective mechanism. It's our thinking about it. It's the anxiety about it. It's, it's the what ifs about it, all of those uncomfortable feelings, the reaction from others, right? Or even our worrying about what the other's reactions are going to be. It's those things that create the anxiety. But those in, in and of themselves, that's not a problem either, really. Even if people laugh, we might feel awfully embarrassed. Yes, of course we are. But those aren't life-threatening either. So we're creating this trigger-happy amygdala. It's just setting off all of these false alarms all of the time for absolutely no reason. The problem is this anxiety, it, it, you know, it really should be saved for dangerous things, but it's not even just everyday things like <gasps> somebody looked at me funny. Our brain can't tell the difference. And so it's getting all confused and, and it, everything is triggering it. What really should be triggering it is a bear or a cougar or an avalanche, <laughs> imminent danger, right? So the anxious brain is just getting all mixed up with all the little things and, and, and you know, they're really not problems, but it's getting mixed up with the dangerous stuff. And so now everything just seems like dangerous stuff. So that's why, you know, it wants us to feel safe, even though we already are safe and our brain can't tell those differences. So the amygdala creates another story with these safety behaviors, believing that the scary thing didn't happen because I did the safety behavior. So for example, I am safe 
as long as I'm walking with my husband, because he's so big and intimidating, there's no dog that's going to come and attack me. And if so, he's going to come and jump in front. He's going to save me. So I'm safe from dogs with my husband. My husband has nothing to do with me being attacked by dogs or not, right? Or the young man who has to sit down whenever his heartbeat gets to 120 beats because he believes if he goes over that 120, he's going to have a heart attack. And then he praises the heavens. Oh my gosh, I'm thank you. I'm so grateful that I sat down because I, I was for sure on the verge of a heart attack. His sitting down had nothing to do with a heart attack, right? He's young. He's healthy. He has no history of heart disease or failure or anything like that in the family. He's not going to have a heart attack. Even when his heart rate goes up to 170, he's not going to have a heart attack. And, and he knows that now because we've done it. And now he's realized, hey, me sitting down at 120 is not going to, you know, it's not saving me from a heart attack. Or the girl who thinks, you know, she's going to suffocate because she doesn't have her water bottle with her. Her water bottle has nothing to do with keeping her safe from suffocating. So kids start to believe that the safety behaviors prevented the bad things from happening. So this is really known as misattribution, misattribution, believing that, phew, that was a really close call. It's a good thing I sat down when I did because I was about to have a heart attack, right? Or phew, thank goodness I had my water bottle because I was just about to suffocate. I, I really, you know, curbed death there. <laughs> and then they don't see that all the information that tells them they weren't actually even close to being in danger at all. They miss all of that. But unfortunately, kids become very dependent on those safety behaviors and they start to feel even more anxious and they start to do even more of these behaviors, which like I already talked about, turns into OCD kind of behaviors because now they're always needing to check or always needing to wash or always needing to sit down or whatever it is that they start doing. And the more we rely on these, the more entrenched that safety story becomes that I need to have this water bottle or whatever it is to be safe because, you know, we're the anxiety is just worsening because we believe that we have to do all of these things to keep safe, but we never learn that the safety behaviors are actually doing nothing at all to keep us safe. So we, we, we really need to be careful for allowing what seems like really easy, quick fixes. Here, just have some water. Oh, that calmed you down. That's great. We got to be careful with those kinds of things, you know? Well, at least he sat down. Now he's calm and he's not disrupting the class, right? Or now he's staying quiet in his bedroom, right? They're going to school on his you know, all of these things, you know, let him bring his blankie. It's okay if he feels safe, you know, we got to be careful that those become quick fixes. Because what ha what happens if the day blankie disappears? What happens the day they forget their water bottle or the teenager loses their headphones? They have no way to cope because they've learned never to cope at all because they've relied so much on either a safety behavior or a safety object, something like that. So we know anxiety creates this sort of tunnel vision, right? Where we zoom in on whatever the potential threats are, and that's all we see. We're, we're, it's very tunnel vision without ever really realizing what's actually going on all around us. And so we can never focus on what it is that we need to do, which is someplace, you know, if, if we've got a classroom, for example, you know, if they're always focused on danger, they're never paying attention to the teacher. So now it looks like they've got ADHD because they can't focus on their work or on the teacher because they're always focusing on every little thing around them. They become so sensitive, even just a kid laughing, like they have to look to see, is that kid laughing at me? 
And so they become so focused on themselves. And there's this sort of, there's the tunnel vision on everything else, but they're so focused on themselves. And, and like my girl with perfection, how am I sitting? How am I looking? Right. Or they're, they're starting to focus on every little ache and pain. That reminds me actually of the girl from the movie, um, my girl, right? Where she, she believes she's constantly running to the doctor every day, thinking that she's going to die from some new ailment, right? Maybe she's got a little bit of indigestion or a little bit of heartburn. She thinks, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm dying. I got to go to the doctor. So she, she becomes so self-focused. So, you know, we, we got we to gotta think about that. And that's self-fulfilling too, because we get so worked up. Of course, our heart's going to start beating, right? And it feels like it's going to explode. There's so much pressure on our chest. So many people have called an ambulance thinking they're going to have a heart attack but it's that panic attack that they kind of put themselves into. But we, we see that, you know, we just start to focus in on ourselves or to potential danger, and that's just worsening anxiety, right? We're just thinking about the anxiety and, and whatever the situation, the triggers are, and we're making it all worse. So we really got to be pay attention to these little subtle sort of seemingly safe behaviors. We know that there are safety behaviors happening when we're starting to think about, you know, whether it's the children that we work with or maybe we've got our own kids who are anxious. We got to start thinking about, does the anxiety continue even though, you know, the kiddo might get to, get to school or maybe they get on the bus or, or, or maybe they go to bed with their blankie, Right. Is the anxiety still there? Because if the anxiety is still happening, needing to have my blankie, needing to have you stand in line at school, those are safety behaviors. It's not making the anxiety better. So, and, and, and I'm talking about things. They go to bed every single night. They go to school every single school day, most school days. They have to ride the bus every day. So these are regular occurrences. They've had lots of opportunities to face their fears, right? To learn that, hey, I can handle this. But they're not learning that they can handle it. They're still anxious. And so if they have had lots of opportunities to all of these different situations and they're still anxious, we know that there's some safety behavior. There's some safety net there, some sort of accommodation that's preventing them from learning that they can handle the situation. Even though we might think that they're doing it, there's something else there that's keeping that anxiety going. So it's really critical to uncover those safety behaviors and stop using them in any anxiety-provoking situation. Now, it gets really tricky. I know it does because sometimes we're going to say that some accommodations and behaviors can be helpful. It's true. They, they can. So it's, it's anything that I say is never, uh, never or always or, or you know what I mean. Like there are some times where some safety behaviors are helpful. Some are needed, like wearing a seatbelt. But sometimes it can be helpful if it gets us to confront our fears. So I will concede if standing with mom in line helps us get into school, only because before we weren't even getting out of the car, right? Maybe that is an intermediate step. Then I would rather have that child have mom stand in line versus not going in at school at all. But we have to quickly start reducing that accommodation that safety behavior. So we might allow it a little bit, but we're going to, you know, make sure that we're pulling that accommodation away because they're always going to think, I always need to have mom. I can't do it on my own because the kiddo, you know, he can get into his classroom all on his own, even without his mom, 
right? But we don't want her to become a conditioned stimuli. That's the problem because he's never going to, that anxiety is going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and it's never going to go away because no learning is happening. So I've shared some examples of safety behaviors, but I have created a worksheet of safety behaviors with a list, just some ideas. I mean, it's not exhaustive. So you really have to play good detective, but it's a good start anyways. I'll put it in the show notes for you. But some of the examples, you know, are sipping water to avoid choking or throwing up. And we'll be like, oh, here, kiddo, just sip some water. You'll feel better, right? Or checking their hair all the time. Maybe they're not raising their hand in class. Maybe they have to look behind the door before they go to the bathroom or before going to bed. Maybe they're feeling too sick to go to school. I mean, those are bigger ones, but maybe it's, not, you know, I'm not going to eat in front of other people. So they're just waiting to eat their snack or lunch and everything at home. I actually have a kiddo who won't eat anything at school or at birthday parties, anything outside the home at all. Um, so, you know, we got to <laughs> look at those kinds of things, um, but it's even subtler. Maybe it's talking really fast or sitting at the back of the class. It could be really, really subtle. And for adults, I mean, I see them taking Ativan, going on a plane, or if there's some anxiety-provoking situation, they just take an Ativan. I've even had teens who will smoke a joint or drink. Drinking is a big one. It's, you know, a social lubricant. So people do believe I'm way more social, I'm way more funny, I'm way um, more interesting when I drink. But that's a problem because they believe that people only like them when they're drunk or high. And so it's a really slippery slope because they never learn, hey, I'm actually pretty cool to hang with with, right? I'm pr actually pretty funny. Or maybe I'm not even funny, but I'm, I can have really meaningful conversations. They're never going to learn that. They're never going to learn that people are going to like me even when I'm sober. Or for kids, I've got lots who, you know, have to have that nightlight on, for example, because they believe that nightlight is going to ward off all the monsters that are going to eat them up. But even my older kids, they still worry about that. I have one guy who actually has to have, um, pitch black. So it's the opposite. He doesn't want any light. And so now one of his safety behaviors is to check his blinds, making sure there's no light, you know, in the crack of his door. It's just completely black all around him because his thing is, is if there's any light, robbers could see me if they break in and they're going to kill me or kidnap me if they can see me. So I want it pitch black so nobody can see me. So for him, you know, I do actually want light. So that, that he can see the darkness and people could see him, you know, if they break into the house and, and know that being completely black is not what's keeping him safe. So we really need to start thinking about what these might be and starting to give them up. It can be really hard to do, but if you keep allowing them to happen, you know, in your work, you're, you're not really going to be helping kids manage their anxiety. You're not going to get very far because they're never going to realize that they are safe. And they don't need to do those things or have those things to make them feel safe. And that's the point here is we need to learn, well, they need to learn, we need to teach them, I am safe. I can handle this situation. I don't need any gimmicks or people or anything. And once kiddos can realize that, everything is so much easier because then they can focus all of their energy on the anxious brain and start talking back. Okay, I know what my amygdala is doing. It's trying to freak me out right now. Okay, Amygdala, I'm going to try to go to sleep now. So thanks for the story, but no thanks, right? So they can start talking back to that trigster, tr um, trigger happy Amygdala instead of all the things around them and, you know, things that are happening to them. So it's really important to think about. Lots to think about. Play detective. Figure out what some of those safety behaviors might be and, and start to 
target those as part of your work that you're doing when helping kids and teens manage anxiety. Thanks for joining me today. I'll see you next time. 